I'm Scott Simon. <laughs> and no, you're not on acid. You're listening to Playback, the podcast chock full of gems from the NPR archives. I'm Carrie Thompson, and I'm here to tell you that stuff like this from 25 years ago, you can't make it up. Welcome to World Cup Soccer in Budapest. I'm Jan Skutkartar, your announcer. What Scott Today, Simon means to say is, welcome to a celebration of the third anniversary of Weekend Edition Saturday. Now, as a professional round number celebrator of things, I was skeptical about celebrating a mere third anniversary. But hang around, because this one may surprise you. This month, we also observed the 50th anniversary of President John F. Kennedy's assassination with some authors who remember the era that began when Kennedy took office. It was a time for new voices and new ideas and shucking off of the old, tired, old Cold War intimidations of thought and and discourse. And composer Stephen Sondheim disses his own songs, including the lyrics he wrote for the musical Gypsy in a conversation with Terry Gross. When you listen back to them, how do you feel about them? I didn't like them then, and I don't like them now. And uh, there are two, two lyrics I like. The rest of them sound very written to me. We'll let you be the judge on this month's playback. The landing at Love Field, the motorcade passing through Dealey Plaza, Parkland Memorial Hospital, these images would forever become a part of the memories of that day. Reporter Glenn Mitchell talked to high school students in Dallas, Texas. John F. Kennedy was real, and the presidents that have been alive since I've been born aren't real. They're plastic paste-ups. I mean, when you, when you think about it, when you can have a person that comes from Hollywood, and he's a movie star, and he can get elected to president, I mean, it's, it's almost if the presidency isn't serious anymore, you know, because this is the me generation. I mean, everyone is doing everything. It doesn't matter about anything else. I don't even think a lot of people my age are even concerned with what's going to happen tomorrow or what could happen, you know, next week. It's always material things. And I think the presidency reflects, you know, that on our society now. And JFK was real. I mean, he wanted to do something. Maybe not necessarily change the entire world, but make a dent, you know, make the effort. Senior Tamiga Goulston. In some ways, of course, Kennedy and the assassination also have the slightly unreal quality of any event about which one's parents may talk, usually prefaced by the line, I can tell you exactly where I was when I heard about it, but which to an 18-year-old is as distant as Pearl Harbor, the Lindbergh flight, or the sinking of the battleship Maine. Anthony Greer. When you're around the uh, memorial there, you sort of forget what happened 25 years ago. You can't just really visualize in your mind a president of the United States getting shot right there where you like you can just walk across the exact place, look up there at the window where the gun was. What about when you see uh, people from Moline, Illinois, walking around with cameras? You know? I mean, it's the whole idea of the memorial that was set up for him. It's almost like we just came to Dallas just to see the type of environment that would allow their president to be assassinated. I mean, and that's and you got to remember an attempted assassination on Reagan's life also happened here. And it's almost go to Dallas and you know, you can see where they try to kill off the presidents, you know, and, they are and yeah. It's hard for us to know what the values of the 60s were because we didn't live there. But my perception of the values of the 60s is totally different than the values of the 70s and 80s, especially the 80s. I picture the 60s as being a place where people were a little more concerned about others than they are today. 
I think that we can still look at JFK's example. But as I was saying, um, people admire JFK probably partly because he never did get to implement a lot of his views. I mean, the conservative people are going to say he was a strong leader, but had he done some of the things that he talked about, we wouldn't be too happy with him. I agree with a lot of JFK's ideas, and I think that he's been an example for all of us. We observe today not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom, symbolizing an end as well as a beginning, signifying renewal as well as change. When John F. Kennedy spoke those words at his inauguration in 1961, he was making a promise to this country. NPR's Susan Stamberg. Twenty-five years ago this week, that promise was broken, not by the man who made it, but by a burst of bullets on a street in Dallas. The event burned into the consciousness of America and the world. We want to mark it in our own way on Weekend Edition. This program, since its inception, has had a special relationship with writers, American writers mostly, who have read their new or in-progress works for us and talked about their writing. And so we turn to some of America's best-known writers and ask them to think with us for a few minutes about the Kennedy assassination. We begin with someone who chose not to speak of the assassination, but rather of the inauguration and the era of change John F. Kennedy symbolized. E.L. Doctorow, author of Ragtime. What he meant, I thought, or the sense I had was that he, he meant the future. He was a breaking out of sorts from the gray, dismal 50s of loyalty oaths in politically opportunistic anti-communism and finger-pointing and conformity and rituals of confession of un-Americanism and, uh, and silent generations of youth. But this was a time when American thought was scanted and easy slogans of Americanism replaced real discourse and a real sense of community in our country. And the 50s were a time when all the war efforts of the 40s went awry in peace and, and we went to war in ourselves as we couldn't stop in ourselves and our institutions. And I think we had lost faith in our democracy and, and everyone was huddled up and scared and the children were being given atom bomb drills along with fire drills in their schools mm -hmm being told to huddle under their desks when the bomb fell. And uh, all of that fell away when Jack Kennedy stood up to take the oath of office. And suddenly we were, we young people had a man we recognized who, who knew what a poet was, for example, and how to laugh and how to be proud as opposed to, to paranoid. Let every nation know whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. When he came along, um, he represented to me a a sense of a national rebirth. That at least was the feeling I had, that it was a time for new voices and new ideas and shucking off of the old, tired, old Cold War intimidations of thought and, and discourse. And some sort of truth was going to come to light about 
who we really were as a people and where we were going and what we had to do to to make ourselves whole and real again. And I thought it was this nomination a kind of daylight after that perpetual dusk of McCarthyism. Kennedy seemed to be a new voice and uh, in sync with the truth of our best instincts, sort of as a republic of fair play and real and steadfast and pragmatic and realistic and ethical Americanism. That's what he meant to me for a moment there. To those people in the huts and villages of half the globe struggling to break the bonds of mass misery, we pledge our best efforts to help them help themselves. For whatever period is required, not because the communists may be doing it, not because we seek their votes, but because it is right. If a free society cannot help the many who are poor, it cannot save the few who are rich. I wasn't gaga over John F. Kennedy in the, you know, in the sense that I, uh, I think I was in control of my uh, hero worship to a degree that I was able to... Um, regard him with some objectivity, but my reaction was, of course, one of very much like Jules Pfeiffer's. Mm -hmm. I was desolated. William Styron, author of The Confessions of Nat Turner and Sophie's Choice. I think I could safely say that aside from this one person who in my life who was close to me who has died, namely my mother when I was quite young, uh, this was the death that affected me the most. I think part of it had to do with just this uh, metaphorical death, that when the chief of state is murdered, we, we feel a desperate sense of disruption and loss. And if it was someone as young and as promising as JFK, it made it all the more unbearable. It, it had to do with some kind of image. And we are, I'm afraid, captives of our image-making uh, process that ability of the mind to create icons. Uh, Kennedy happened to be one of those, and uh, it was just catastrophic when he disappeared. All this will not be finished in the first 100 days, nor will it be finished in the first 1,000 days, nor in the life of this administration, nor even perhaps in our lifetime on this planet. But let us begin. Author, poet, and playwright Maya Angelou was in Africa when John Kennedy was killed. Ms. Angelou was an expatriate, unhappy with civil rights in America. The assault on President Kennedy and subsequently on the American people caused a sense of dislocation, I think. People didn't feel real. I think that when a traumatic shock which is not unlike what happens to people in, in a serious earthquake when the ground begins to move and the center does not hold and things fall apart. One then questions not only what's happening, one really asks, am I alive? Mm -hmm. Is this happening to me? Uh, am I real? And... I was living in Ghana when President Kennedy was assassinated, and I was a part of a young, angry black American group, uh, expatriates in Ghana, 
we were doing our best to feel as Africans. The assassination made me more American and frighteningly American in those few days. I couldn't seem to get away from it anywhere inside myself. I couldn't explain to my African friends to whom I had been berating America because of its racism and uh, for being so thick and dense and cruel. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly the president was assassinated and I was weeping to find a, a president who seemed to care, a president who recognized not only that we existed, but that we were human beings who existed. So it was devastating. Author Maya Angelou talking to NPR's Susan Stamberg. Here's NPR's Terry Gross. When Stephen Sondheim was young, his mentor was his neighbor, the celebrated lyricist Oscar Hammerstein. Now Stephen Sondheim is Broadway's foremost composer and lyricist, the one who more than anyone else has connected the Broadway tradition of Rodgers and Hammerstein to the adventurous harmonies and dissonances of contemporary music. Sondheim is the winner of a Pulitzer Prize, and he's the only composer-lyricist to win a Tony Award three consecutive years. His shows include A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Company, Follies, A Little Night Music, Sweeney Todd, Sunday in the Park with George, and the current hit Into the Woods. Even if you're not familiar with those shows, you probably know his song Send in the Clowns. Sondheim started on Broadway as a lyricist, collaborating with Leonard Bernstein on West Side Story and with Julie Stein on Gypsy. Sondheim rarely gives interviews, but today he was lecturing at the University of Pennsylvania in a series featuring writers affiliated with Penn, the International Writers' Organization, and he paid us a brief visit. Your first Broadway uh, work was with Leonard Bernstein writing the lyrics for West Side no, Story. No, I wrote the lyrics. He wrote the music. You didn't like the idea of starting as a lyricist, though? No, I, no I, I, was, I was trained as a composer, and that's what I wanted to do. I'd majored in music, and I'd studied music on a scholarship with Milton Bab for two years, and... Um, no, I was, it was an accident, and um, I wouldn't have done it except that Oscar thought it was a good idea for me to, to do it because Bernstein and Jerry Robbins and Arthur Lawrence were seasoned professionals, and I was you know, 25 years old, and he thought it would be a good learning experience for me, and he was right. West Side Story was about gangs. You were from a, an upper-middle-class family. Was it hard to... No, it wasn't really about gangs. It was about... Well, really, it's about the theater is what West Side Story is about. And about the theater? Yeah, yeah. It's about theater techniques, not really about gangs. That's the story. That it's, it's Romeo and Juliet, it is. And it's just a transposition of Romeo and Juliet. So Arthur Lawrence very early on realized that there was no point in trying to be realistic about gang language, for example, because slang and argot, as you know, change every two months. And he knew that by the time we got the show on, any, any authentic talk he made would, would be outdated. So he made up all the language. And that's what we all decided to do, that the whole, sh whole show should really be ima about imagination. Those are the first lyrics you wrote that got performed on Broadway, they've become classics. When you listen back to them, how do you feel about them? I didn't like them then, and I don't like them now. And uh, there are two, two lyrics I like. The rest of them sound very written to me. Which ones are the ones that you learned? Uh, Something's Coming and the Jet Song. The others are, you know, they're very self-conscious. But that's 
that was partly uh, Lenny's influence because he wanted he very much wanted the show to be important, and that to him important meant that the lyrics should be quote poetic. And his idea of poetic and mine are different. And um, I think what he really wanted was purple prose, and I wanted simplicity, which is what I'd gotten from Oscar. So uh, I think the lyrics are very self-conscious. I was bending over to please everybody, of course, because I was so young. And um, so I find, you know, except for the occasional line, I think they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty embarrassing. You worked with Julie Stein on Gypsy. You wrote the lyrics that for that. That was the next show, yes. Now, in his autobiography, he said one of the things he liked about working with you is that you never asked for extra notes. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> does that mean like if, uh, if you find a three-syllable word that you think is just perfect that you beg the composer for, for two extra notes? No, well, no, this, no actually, no. I, I, I think... I think uh, first of all, most, most of the lyrics in Gypsy, uh, the, the music sort of... Uh, followed the lyrics that say I would write sample quatrains or couplets and give them rhythms to work from. Um, but uh, no, I, I, in fact, I'd never do that anyway when I, wor- when I work with a composer. I, um, I've only worked with three, but I, uh, uh, in the, only once in West Side Story I asked for extra syllables. I mean, a number of the tunes in West Side Story were taken out of Candide uh, that were not used in Candide. One of them was a song called One, which was composed of dotted half notes, and um, it went one hand, one heart. But I said, we got to watch that, I said, I really, those, it's just too few notes there, and uh, the word's just, just too heavy and too pretentious, and at least, you know, if you give me three-quarter notes instead of one dotted half, I would appreciate it. Well, the lyric's still pretty pretentious, but it's not as pretentious as it was. <laughs> started writing your own music, did you feel like you were carrying on the tradition of Rodgers and Hammerstein in any way, or did you feel like you were breaking from that? Oh, no, it was Rodgers and Hammerstein, certainly, absolutely. What about what they had done felt like what you were doing? What is the tradition exactly? Oh, it's a tradition. Uh, it's, it's something Oscar really started with Showboat. It's, uh, he, he combined the whole European operetta idea with the American musical comedy idea, and the American musical comedy idea was, you know, series of songs with jokes in between, and the operetta idea was a series of, you know, Graustarkian situations with um, um, outlandish romantic variations on them, and essentially an excuse for singers to let forth with large romantic or choral pieces. And uh, with Showboat, he attempted to bring some realism into the musical theater and to combine the two so that they became what you could call a musical play, not an opera, but a musical play. And... uh, somewhere between an operette and a musical comedy. And that was not taken up very much by other people during the 30s, and Oscar tried a few himself, and they failed. So it wasn't until Oklahoma came along, with was such gigantic success, that the movement was resuscitated. And after that, virtually everybody started to write what they call integrated musicals, in which the songs carried the story forward instead of just being uh, uh, respites and uh, uh, moments between jokes and block comedy scenes. And that's, that's essentially what I was doing. Is that why you like to work in the setting of, of 
Broadway shows because there are, are details of a story to work into a song. It's not just a, a generic love song. There's characters. Oh, yeah, sure. That's exactly why, yes. I'd much rather write for, for character and situation. I wouldn't know how to just write a song because I would have to invent a character in a situation if you asked me to write a song. The few few songs I've written, like, for, I know, people's birthdays and things like that, that I, I've written apart from dramatic situations, I've had to invent the dramatic situation or take it out of a real-life situation. Have you ever taken a lyric of yours and changed it because you thought it was too clever? Uh, no, I've t- yes, well, I've taken it, yes, I have, uh, when, I think th- when I think the audience isn't getting it. Uh, or when I think it's out of character, I did it in Into the Woods. There was a, a, a nice couplet in a, a song called No More, and it was very graceful, and it was too graceful for the character. Uh, yes, I will take it out sometimes, ha- not often, because I usually do that in, in my study while I'm writing it, when I think that it's either out of character or when I think that it may be um, something difficult for the audience to um, assimilate quickly, because the whole point of a song is, as opposed to a poem, uh, which you can read at your own speed, the uh, lyric goes by at its speed, and you have to catch up with it. So it's up to the lyric writer and the composer to make it clear to the audience at the same time, not lag behind them, nor be so far ahead of them that they get baffled. So sometimes you have to you have to underwrite lyrics for just that purpose. You have to give them air, and you have to make the lyrics simpler than you would if it was on paper. Well, I thank you very much for spending okay. some time with us. Thank you. Right. Will it be? Yes, it will. Maybe just by holding still, it'll be there. Come on, something, come on in. Don't be shy. Meet a guy, pull up a chair. The air is humming, and something great is coming. Just out of reach, down the block on a beach, maybe tonight. And that something great is here. NPR's Scott Simon. This is the third anniversary of our program, and we want to violate one of the precepts of our business for a few minutes to present a piece about our show and how it's put together. The fact is, we hear it just in sections. Seconds and snippets turning away inside of studios on reels of tape, receiving at least usually our full attention. Okay, music cue. Ready? You ready? Gonna blow it. Hit it. Ready? Out where it's actually heard as a radio program, we know it comes into bedrooms, kitchens, and cars, sometimes as a distraction from errands, breakfast, and chores, competing for an audience in many households against Saturday morning television. National Public Radio in Washington, D.C. Kids, Scott Show's on the radio. Do you want to come listen to Scott Show? No, I want to watch Pee-wee. Pee-wee? Sometimes when we're trying to persuade someone who's reluctant to be interviewed to appear on our program, we tell them, we appreciate your desire to avoid publicity. Being on our show is the next best thing. Saturday Weekend Edition, of course, is a direct descendant of National Public Radio's daily programs, All Things Considered and Morning Edition, and although each staff is separate, their efforts are coordinated. Each weekday morning at about 10.40, the 10.30 editorial meeting begins. Editors of the foreign, national, and Washington desks report on where reporters and correspondents have been deployed and what stories they're pursuing. The Soviets have announced a budget deficit. Unbelievable. Which is amazing. <laughs> Cooper's going to do this piece tonight. 
you think it needs more? Is there someone we should talk to? Information is evaluated, strategies for coverage are suggested, and editors and producers of the individual programs have the opportunity to express an interest in certain stories. Saturday Weekend Edition is represented by our senior producer, Cindy Carpian, and our editor, Brooke Gladstone, who try to develop out of the abundance of information presented stories that suit the distinct approach of Weekend Edition. Connie, we were wondering what happened to that piece we were promised on how Soviet clown colleges were faring under perestroika? Well, we see about that, okay? Connie, also, uh, we wanted someone to cover the international hammer dulcimer workshop in Zagreb this weekend. When the tape from one of our reports recorded on location has been edited, it's turned over to the host of the program who then writes the script. The time it takes to complete that script can be the source of some irritation on this show. Does anybody know what he's doing in there? I think he's studying the thesaurus. Yeah, right. He's probably reflecting. Hey, is that his phone going on? That is his light. That's the light to it. He must be calling a source or something. A real exclusive source. Very exclusive source. Hi, Patagonia? I have a a question on some items in the winter catalog. Do you have the um, cinchilla cardigan in the black... Periwinkle Fusion number one. Oh, God, what could he be doing in there? Well, he emerged a couple of minutes ago looking pale and aesthetic. Hello, uh, you sensitive souls. Uh, can I talk to Scott? Is he in the office? Yeah, no, he's It's very important. It's, it's very important. I'll just be, I'll just be a moment, I promise. Scott? Are you busy writing? Are you kidding? <laughs> I, I have this problem. I just yeah. need some advice on, which is... Sure. Uh, my short chip shots, I can't make them go straight. Robert, Robert, here's the problem. You're swinging down on the ball with the heel of the club. I've been meaning to tell you that, okay? So, so, so you got to... Well, somebody please tell me what he is doing in there. Jeez, he's been in there long enough to write something like War and Peace. What the hell is he doing in there? I'm going in there. No, no, wait. You can't go. You can't go. You can't go in there. So I turn the club face. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that, that way the blade is going to be a little bit straight. Oh, that's it. Keep your wrist straight at the same that's time. And just turn it over like that. I got it. That's what it. are you doing? That's it. That's what Gorbachev has to do. He can't institutionalize perestroika and just have well, new people doing the same. That's what I think. I think the Politburo oh. has been uh, specific and it's... Uh, hi. Hi, Cindy. I'm sorry. Hi, Hassan. Can we help? Uh, n- no. That's all right. We'll just be a moment. Yeah, Don't worry about just it. Just another moment. Work out this thing I have to yeah, write yeah. for this evening. And... Nice getting together. Mm. Uh, that's exactly, and tee it up a little bit higher. Tee it up a little bit higher, a little bit higher. Very important, right? By the time the program begins on Saturday morning, some of it has been pre-recorded, including the show's opening announcements and theme. Scott, stand by for the short open. Ready? Roll and record. Here it comes. Ready on the mic. Open. One of our directors, Neva Grant, oversees the recording of this section in advance so that a mistake is less likely to occur live. The studio is separated from the control room by a pane of glass, and we communicate between the two over an intercom. We're going to play an outtake now of a mistake which never aired, of what happened several months ago when the tape machine which plays our theme music was mistakenly set at a lower speed. I'm Scott Simon, and I'm feeling a little under the weather today. How about you? (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) In the control room, our producer was motioning and directing for our engineers to stop the machine, set the speed right for re-recording, but engineering mutiny had broken out by then. This, you know, this sounds like the um, 
Hungarian national anthem or something, doesn't it? <laughs> Welcome to World Cup Soccer in Budapest. I'm Janskut Kartar, your announcer. Today, the teams from People's Republic of Hungary play teams from People's Republic of Hungary. Sometimes in the process of making a program sound as sure and composed as it almost never is, extended moments of upset, frenzy, and anxiety ensue on the matter of just a few seconds here and there. Okay, no label, but it's all right. 233. If a coup d'etat occurs somewhere or a hurricane swirls ashore, there's staff and freelance reporters in place to cover those events. Ready? Get it, Mike, out. It's 233. Okay. 56 when you come out. 233. I don't know what the out is, just look at the tape. But if a tape piece runs unexpectedly short, so that the excerpt of music that's been selected to fill the time between tape pieces is suddenly not long enough to fill that time, there's the threat of dead air. To someone in radio, dead air is a tax increase. It's the greenhouse effect. It's cellulite. Anything and everything must be done to avoid dead air. And so in this instance, our producer sprints to a far-off section of the building to pluck up a piece of music that may work. Scott, it's kind of crazy in here, so let me tell you when we got a chance. We're going to have some music coming out, and then you're going to read us to Dan. You're going to read us to Dan. You want to hear it in cue just to make sure it's okay? No, we don't have time. I don't know if it would even sound like Okay, ready on your music. Hit it. Sneak it in. It's perfect. It's perfect. I love it. It's delicious. Sometimes sudden editorial decisions need to be resolved at the last moment between the control room and the studio. Here's our technical director, Rich Rary. You're going to give the time to cue first? Yeah, right? We get the time to cue first. Speaking of which, it's in four minutes it'll be... It'll be like four and a half, one, two, three, four, like 27 after. 28 minutes past the hour? Well, let's see, the big hand, and then the little hand, and then that red hand that circles around real fast. So what's the consensus on the time? Let's go 28. Wait, wait, we're, no, wait we're waiting for a consensus on the time. <laughs> yeah, take the main. Take out the top... And take out the low guesstimate, all right? Ready on his mind. It's not really until the final moments of the program that most of the people who put it on the air can listen to it as a program rather than some project which must be worried over. In those final moments, our producer and editor can take the time to stand by the door leading into our studio. I can't believe that last interview. Yeah, you can get tougher questions from a department store Santa Claus. And that phony warmth. Cindy, he sounds like Art Linkletter. I know. Here he is. Great show, Scott. Oh, that was great. great. That it was really great. was. Yeah. I can't believe how skillful you were drawing that person out. That was great. Yeah, oh, you, usually Santa. it's so difficult to get Jerry Lewis to talk about himself. Oh, I don't know how you do it. I really don't know how you do it. Our editor has twin daughters, Max and Sophie, who are three years old, and after the program, when the staff is still on duty but trying to steal naps on the floor, their father brings them here to visit. There are adults here who will disappear when Max and Sophie say abacadabra. The twins say our studio is a cave, and inside there's a monster, and they ask whoever they see standing there to be that monster and chase them down the hall. Hey! 
Okay, well, that's good. We all know how that story comes out. The twins grow up, and Weekend Edition Saturday goes on to create roughly 2,600 more hours of scintillating radio, many of them with the legendary host, Scott Simon. Next month, it's a holly jolly holiday. Dr. John joins Terry Gross in the studio. The Kitchen Sisters share some homemade recordings from the 1930s. And Susan Stamberg reads The Gift of the Magi. A special playback shout-out this month goes out to Kara Philbin, Allison Cork, and Mr. Franz Osario. I'm Carrie Thompson, and you're listening to Playback. <laughs>